Hey, everybody, it's Mark Thompson, and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. You know, I have the pleasure of working with the world's leading chief executives, including people like David Stern, who for three decades perhaps had more influence in that 30-year period by one individual than in the history of the NBA. And this, of course, is an exciting time for the NBA. It was a time in which he has really helped lead to the explosion in the value of the franchises themselves and supported the Women's Basketball Association and so much impact in terms of social responsibility. Well, David was kind enough to invite me to hang out with him at, of all places, the World Economic Forum in Zurich. So please enjoy this conversation with the iconic David Stern. David, thank you for being on the program. Thanks for having me. wanted to ask you about this passion for basketball. And I know that you know guys like I didn't get picked, I didn't, I didn't get picked for the basketball squad in, in college, and I assume perhaps maybe you did. No, as a matter of fact, I didn't. My, uh, my love for the game in New York City growing up, you just were a Knicks fan. And, and for us, uh, I grew up in a section of Manhattan called Chelsea, which was 23rd Street or so. The garden was at 49th, and you walked up 8th Avenue, and for 50 cents, and the, I guess we called the G.O., you got seats upstairs, and, and we used to go on Saturday afternoons, and, and actually during the week, uh, my dad, who owned, actually, strangely enough, a delicatessen on 23rd Street, it was a big deal to go up on a Thursday night go into the garden and see a doubleheader. The Knicks might be playing the Syracuse Nationals and the Celtics might be playing, uh, you know, the Philadelphia Warriors. And and can you imagine a doubleheader of basketball? I mean, it's, uh, whoever heard of such a thing with four different themes? It was really, it was terrific. And I love the game. Uh, I wasn't particularly good, uh, although I don't have any ACL left because of my exploits on a lawyer's basketball league. Uh, so, so I was I was five ten when I was thirteen, and I was five ten when I was thirty three, and I'm probably five nine and three quarters now. And so I went from becoming a slow forward to a slow guard. But uh, uh, but I and I had my nose broken a couple of times, so I I can't claim to be a, a serious basketball player. I was just picturing you playing street ball in the Bronx, and uh, <laughs> and I'm glad to hear that you had a few broken bones along yes, the way. Yes, always. When you have this responsibility as, as commissioner, you've got a lot of enormously talented people and, and, and players and teams to work with. They have uh, very different ways of uh, handling the game, managing themselves and so forth. How do you get buy-in? How do you pull all the big egos together so they can kind of move in the right direction? You know, I think that, I think that number one, I really like people. I enjoy working with them, arguing with them, tilting with them. Um, and I think that as long as I have a sense of where I want to go and I share it with them and they sort of share, if not my either my passion or my view, but share with me the sense that we're all working on the same thing and we all want the game to do well, that even though we might not agree on precise methods, the, the community activity, as it were, I think uh, gets contributed to by everybody. And, and there'll always be a, some hot spots along the way. But for the last, I guess, 20 years or so, uh, I think that the group of people at the NBA, together with the players, together with the owners, have been on some 
on the same page. It has had to be a very big page to include them all, but, but there is a sense that we're all going to benefit and we all want this sport to grow into the global uh, product that we know it can be. If you think about new coaches coming into a, a team and you were having an opportunity to coach that coach to avoid some of the pitfalls that you've seen, because you've been having a front row seat on the, the sport and also the de development of the game and the relationship with the players, what would be the one or two pitfalls that you coach them to avoid? I would, you know, I would, I would give them advice that I think would probably get them into trouble, but it's the way I would coach, and that is you have to set a, a, a standard, a set of rules, if you would, and you've got to apply them to everybody and, to the, and, and, and be yourself in terms of your vision of what you want for the team. Because as you start making individual concessions from those rules to individuals based not upon their necessary need for those exceptions, but because of their supposed talent or importance to the team, I think you're going to slide down to nothing and, and lose the respect of your players. Keep your values strong. Keep them out there. Keep your values strong. Be ready to deviate and compromise on a particular case where there's a need based upon a person's personality or needs that are genuine and you don't want to be inflexible, but don't do it based upon simply the, the uh, importance of that person to the effort if, if, if his need isn't real, but it's just a favor being asked or a, a special exception being taken because he can get away with it. I, I just, I think that, that as I listen to players, and that's where I get that from, they love to have coaches that treat them alike, that, that gather all the players together in pursuit of a goal, and that uh, don't make special exceptions based upon advantage being taken by one person. If you were to think about all the, the conflict and controversy that's occurred, what would be kind of the, one of the most significant acts of courageous leadership that you've seen undertaken uh, that you've experienced while you've been watching the de development of the sport? Um, well, I, I, nothing, I mean, I, I can just give you a prototype. I think that, that, you know, when I watched a young coach, and this is not the most courageous, this is just an act of principle, a young coach who gets involved like a Nate McMillan and is being tested by a Gary Payton and he says, no, we're not going to do it that way. And he suspends his star player um, or, or he doesn't suspend him, he benches him and sends him to think about the fact that they're going to um, do it a certain way for overall for the team. And I always nod when I see that. And I, and I, and I, and I watch, I watch a, a Pat Riley, uh, who's I think known as a tough sort of taskmaster, but, but he has a set of values and he imparts them to the team. And then if he has to suspend a player, um, I think he, he does. And I think if anything, it gives him the support of the overall team. Whenever I see a coach or a team sort of back away I think that I, I see trouble coming. And I don't mean to go looking for the fight. I mean just... There are plenty out there. There are plenty out there. But no, I just, just you know, and, and so I don't, I no spectacular act of courage. The, the individual acts of courage to me are, 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 have, are more importantly described as 
Magic Johnson deciding that he was, even though he was HIV positive, he wasn't going to shrivel up and go away. And, and some combination of medical miracle and will, almost a decade later, uh, Magic looks great and seems to be going strong. And Alonzo Mourning, who has this uh, you know, degenerative kidney disease, or Sean Elliott, that uh, is able to come back after having a kidney transplant. Those are, to me, sort of acts of courage. The rest are uh, sort of principles of leadership and hurting, but not necessarily acts of uh, courage. Now, you've got this enormous organization and the fastest growing one in this part of the world. Now, if you were to think about a lesson that you wish or a skill that you had today that you could have had when you first stepped into this role and made the transformation, would there be a lesson there that you could share with? Well, I think that's a simple one, and that is that you have to, um, you have to learn how to transfer your own or impart your own principles and then learn how to delegate. And, and by delegation, that doesn't mean delegation and run away from it, but delegation where others should take 92% of the effort and do it, and you get involved sort of along the way at appropriate times, but, but you, you shepherd it really in more of a leadership role. And I've, I've, that's been slow in coming to me. I, I'm the CEO, but, but sometimes I act too much on particular projects, like I'm the project manager. And that's fun, and maybe that's why I do it, uh, for the very important things. But, but I think, if anything, I, I have tended to do too much of that on too many matters, and, and that detracts from the ability to spend quality time thinking more strategically, and I think that's a benefit to the organization when the CEO has the opportunity to spend a lot more time on strategic matters. Now, unfortunately, whether it's a lockout or a collective bargaining or a television negotiation or having a couple of franchises that want to move to the same city, that tends to take your time and focus your attention, but, but short of those very, very large items, I think, the lesson I've learned is you've got to be able to step back and focus your attention on broad strategic issues. What's the most rewarding thing about your role as a leader here? I would say the most rewarding thing is, well, number one, just as a management matter to see an organization that is, uh, starts at 24 people and gets to be 1,100, uh, and, and when a number of people come in and talk very often on exit interviews where, they, where they're moving back home to Canada or getting married and going to California or what have you. And they talk about their co-workers and, and how they're really very sorry to leave and will always consider them members of the NBA family because they've made great friends here, they've enjoyed working, they have a passion for what we do and the people who do it. And I think being part of a, a place that has that kind of a notion to it that that people actually can do what they enjoy doing with people that they enjoy being with in a context where they enjoy being uh, is very very rewarding on a sort of a more macro level i think 
the most rewarding thing is that we have a sport that people thought was essentially too black for America and the world to accept. And that was in 19, sort of, circa 78 to 82. And uh, post Dr. J, post Michael, post Magic, or and currently Allen and Iverson and Vince Carter and you name it, Kevin Garnett, Shaq, Kobe. Um, we have a group of players, both black and white, who uh, continue to excite not only America, but the world. David, I want to thank you for joining us. Delighted to have been invited on. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.